0: North Korea claims its latest round of missile launches were a simulation of a nuclear war aimed at taking out South Korean and American targets. It's Tuesday, October 11th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, Ukraine is figuring out how to answer a series of deadly Russian missile strikes. Russian leaders say they're a response to Ukraine fighting against the Russian invasion. Also, drug policy experts push back on claims that drug dealers are marketing rainbow fentanyl to kids. People
1: who sell drugs often color the pills or the powders that they sell often as a way to distinguish their product from other products that
0: are on the street. And this hour, New England author Annie Prue talks about her new non-fiction work which focuses on climate change.
2: There will forever be people who want to drain wetlands. That they don't see how they could be useful.
0: Clearing for a sunny day in the 60s. It's 7.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. There have been fresh missile attacks on Ukraine today and civilians are back in bomb shelters. The governor of a western Ukrainian province says blasts targeted two energy facilities in the Lviv region. Additional missile strikes have been reported in southern Ukraine. This follows yesterday's strikes that killed 19 people and wounded more than 100 other Ukrainians. President Biden meets virtually with G7 leaders today to talk about Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. NPR's Asma Khalid reports the leaders are holding an emergency meeting. The White House says Biden
4: will meet with G7 leaders to discuss their, quote, unwavering commitment to support Ukraine and hold Putin accountable in the face of Russia's aggression and atrocities. Ukraine's President Zelensky will also address the group. Biden spoke with him yesterday and pledged to continue providing Ukraine with support to defend itself, including advanced air defense systems. Biden has said that the United States will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes, and he has reiterated that the U.S., alongside allies, intends to continue to put pressure on Russia. To date, that has included severe sanctions and
3: export controls. Asma Khalid, NPR News. North Korea has conducted seven test launches of missiles in the past two weeks. Some launches were supervised by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. The missiles were capable of carrying nuclear weapons. NPR's Anthony Kuhn tells us North Korea has also changed its law on when it can use nuclear bombs.
5: The law says that North Korea can use its nukes preemptively. That is, it can launch them not because it's been attacked, but simply because it's losing in a conventional war. And previously, Kim Jong-un has been the only one with the authority to launch nukes. But now Kim apparently intends to delegate authority to use tactical nukes to frontline military commanders so that even if Kim is killed in a decapitation strike, North Korea can still retaliate.
3: NPR's Anthony Kuhn reporting. Testimony resumes today in the Justice Department's most serious case related to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports on the start of Week 2 in the trial of Oath Keeper's founder, Stuart Rhodes. Federal
6: prosecutors are introducing dozens of text messages and video recordings of Stuart Rhodes' in the weeks before rioters stormed the Capitol. They say Rhodes pushed then-President Donald Trump to take action and prevent the transfer of power. Rhodes and the four other members of the far-right group on trial here have pleaded not guilty. They argue the Oath Keepers gathered on January 6 to provide security for VIPs at the Trump rally. The judge is considering whether the jury should see a text message between Rhodes and a lawyer for the group days before the siege. In the text, Rhodes wrote, quote, they won't fear us till we come with rifles in hand. Carrie Johnson,
3: NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston police are investigating a shooting that left a 14-year-old boy dead. It happened yesterday around noon in Roxbury. Police say another boy sustained non-life-threatening injuries. No arrests have been made, and police haven't commented on a motive. The Berry Museum Association in Western Mass says it will return more than a 100 items to a Native American tribe in South Dakota. Some of the items are believed to have been taken off the bodies of Oglala Lakota Sioux people killed by the U.S. cavalry at Wounded Knee. Nancy Cohn reports. The objects include pipes, weapons, and children's moccasins. After tribal members came to Barry in April, the museum photographed and cataloged the collection, sharing information with Sioux communities. Cedric Broken-Nose, a descendant of Chief Bigfoot, who was killed at Wounded Knee, thanked the museum, and said tribal members will hold ceremonies in South Dakota once the
7: items are returned. It's
8: a time of healing for the people, for the descendants. We're still alive. We're still here, so we're looking at this as a historical event.
0: The museum plans to hand the items to tribal members at an event in Barrie in early November. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. The Boston City Council today will take up competing redistricting maps for the city. City councilors have different ideas on how to keep the demographics of the new map similar to what they are now while not separating communities. The final map is due in early November. Redistricting takes place every 10 years to account for population changes. The region's bike-sharing program is becoming more popular and seems to be being used by people more for leisure than for work. The Blue Bikes system was free to use in Boston during the Orange Line shutdown this summer. Usage, usage spiked and has remained relatively high even after the shutdown ended. Ridership is highest on weekends. Blue Bikes general manager Dominic Trebone says that's part of a trend he's been watching since 2020.
9: Blue bikes used to have its peak ridership days during weekdays, and then during
10: uh, the beginning of the pandemic, we saw that flip to to weekends, which is a combination of people using bikes for for leisure activity, visitors using them, and you know people who work on weekends also.
0: There are plans to add a hundred new blue bike stations within the next three years. It's seven oh seven.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, with state-of-the-art, fully-equipped BL2 lab space just outside Cambridge. Learn more at LabShares.com. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning.
0: Skies will clear throughout the morning, and it'll be sunny by this afternoon. The high today will be in the mid-60s, clear overnight with a low around 50, mostly sunny tomorrow with a high in the 70s. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 707.
11: WBUR supporters include Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steven Skipp.
11: And I'm Leila Faldil. You can break the Russian
4: invasion of Ukraine into two conflicts. There's the physical war, people killed, buildings destroyed, and there's the information war over what the conflict means.
10: On Monday, Russia launched dozens of missiles into Ukrainian cities. The places struck ranged from an energy company headquarters to a playground. It's hard to say the strikes on civilian targets affected Ukraine's military, but they may have been intended to have an effect inside Russia.
4: NPR's Charles Maines is joining us now from Moscow. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Good morning. So Russia apparently responded to the bombing of a symbolically important bridge. What else were those attacks saying?
12: Yeah, you know, it seems like it was an effort to quell growing doubts here in Russia about how the conflict is unfolding. Uh, For weeks, we've seen growing criticism among hardliners here over the military strategy Uh, They argue Russia has essentially been losing in Ukraine because the Kremlin was fighting with one hand tied behind its back. In other words, Russia wasn't using the full force available to it. Uh, In that sense, yesterday's attacks appear not to be a one-off, but signal this conflict is escalating. Uh, There were more attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure this morning reported. And don't forget, just hours after this Saturday bridge incident, we saw Putin promote a new battlefield commander, uh, General Sergei Serovikin, uh, to oversee the military operations in Ukraine. Uh, Serovikin is seen as a more ruthless military strategist based on his past experience overseeing, for example, Russia's military operations in Syria, uh, particularly using rocket attacks.
4: So what has been the response then, especially from hardliners, to these attacks from these critics?
12: Well, nothing short of joy uh, among mm-hmm. nationalists and Kremlin loyalists. Uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, for example, the strongman leader of Chechnya, who was who's really gone after the defense ministry over these recent setbacks, uh, now says he's 100% behind this new tougher approach. Uh, others, like Dmitry Medvedev, who's a member of the Security Council, uh, seem to view the attacks as basically a reboot of Russia's military campaign. You know, He's again talking about the total dismantling of the Kiev government. And remember, that was an early goal of Putin's in the conflict. And then there's uh, Anton Krasovsky. He's one of the more provocative propagandists on the state-sponsored RT Russia television channel. So here's Krasovsky on television saying this was a fantastic day and he literally danced to the news. Uh, this is what Russians, he claimed, had been waiting for all these months, you know, proof they were winning. And he said he wanted to wake up every morning and read the same pain was being inflicted on the enemy.
4: But does this then back Putin into a corner? Because he'll have to keep delivering on this more forceful approach. So does he run the danger of possibly looking weak again if he doesn't?
12: Well, it's true they want Putin to go all in, uh, but it may not be that simple. Russia has massive firepower like the likes of which we saw yesterday, but supplies aren't unlimited. Even bombing Ukraine on a massive scale, if it inflicts damage, it, it kills people, but it doesn't change the situation on the battlefield. And they're You know, Russia's struggles continue. In recent weeks, it's lost large swaths of territory in areas Moscow claimed to have already annexed. And a mobilization drive, an effort to inject new troops, has struggled amid sloppy implementation and resistance from the public. So yesterday's attacks seem to have pushed those problems into the background, but just for now.
4: NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow, thank you so much for your time.
12: Thank you.
10: In this country, people are preparing for what is supposed to be a happy time. Halloween is coming which you can tell by asking my kids or seeing the nine-foot skeleton on the street not far from my house. The Drug Enforcement Administration, though, is issuing a warning at this time, a warning that drug dealers are marketing fentanyl pills that look like candy. This warning has gone viral on social media, but some drug policy experts doubt it. Here's NPR Addiction correspondent Brian Mann. The Drug Enforcement
9: Administration has been issuing terrifying alerts for weeks that bright-colored fentanyl pills have been spotted in a growing number of states. The DEA says they've identified a deliberate new marketing scheme by Mexican cartels and street dealers who want the pills to, quote, look like candy to children and young people. Here's the DEA's top official, Ann Milgram, speaking to NBC News.
13: It looks like candy. And in fact, some of the drug traffickers have nicknamed it Sweet Tarts,
9: Skittles. The DEA also warned of fentanyl smuggled in a box of Lego toys and fentanyl dyed to look like the chalk children use to color sidewalks. These alerts didn't mention Halloween, but in an interview on Fox, Milgram was asked whether parents should worry about candy gathered by kids trick-or-treating.
13: "We have not seen any connection to Halloween," and I want to be very Drug
9: clear policy experts contacted it. by I NPR agree there's no new fentanyl threat this Halloween, but many are also skeptical of the DEA's original warning. They don't believe Mexican drug cartels and street dealers have launched any new campaign targeting children. So I
5: don't see any evidence that the DEA has produced that supports that conjecture.
9: Nabarun Gupta is a researcher at the University of North Carolina. His lab tests illegally manufactured opioid pills collected from across the U.S. Dasgupta says colored pills like the ones highlighted in the DEA warnings are on the streets, but it's nothing new.
5: We get them almost on a daily basis. We see pinks and purples, yellow, green, red, aqua, fuchsia.
9: Street drug experts contacted by NPR say traffickers have long used bright colors in their products for reasons that have nothing to do with children. Dr. Sheila Vacari is with an addiction think tank called the Drug Policy Alliance.
1: We do know that people who sell drugs often color the the pills or the powders that they sell often as a way to distinguish their product from other products that are on the street.
9: Drug experts point out fentanyl is incredibly powerful, often deadly. Marketing the pills deliberately to children would be incredibly risky. The legal penalties for dealing drugs to kids are severe. They also say really young kids who might be drawn to pills that look like candy typically lack access to the kind of cash that makes for good repeat customers. Vicaria describes this alarm as a distraction. She thinks the bigger public safety threat is dealers coloring and shaping pills to look like they come from a pharmacy.
1: Oftentimes, colors are also used to sometimes mimic legitimate prescription medications.
9: NPR sent questions about this to the DEA and asked repeatedly for an interview or for evidence to support the claim drug dealers are intentionally using candy like fentanyl to hook children. The DEA sent a statement saying their investigations showed traffickers are targeting young people in part by using social media, but they declined to offer specifics. Everyone contacted for this story agrees fentanyl is a danger. Overdoses hit record levels in the U.S. last year with a sharp rise among people aged 15 to 34. Brandon Lopozo, an addiction researcher at Brown University, says fears about this very real crisis have sometimes given rise to inaccurate information and false alarms. Fentanyl is a very potent drug that's causing a lot of overdose death, but it's taken on a mythical life of its own. Del Pozo says drug scares that aren't based on good data matter because they distract attention from the need for better health care and addiction treatment.
14: We're foregoing like good, solid,
9: basic public health and safety information that could be used to reverse overdoses, link people to treatment, and save lives. Again, there's no evidence of any heightened risk from fentanyl linked to this Halloween. The Food and Drug Administration does offer a list of safety tips every October, recommending kids only accept candy that's commercially wrapped and advising parents to examine sweets for any signs of tampering. Brian Mann, NPR News.
4: California has provided more than $4 billion in emergency rent relief. The pandemic payments were a lifeline for many people, but now the state is telling thousands they have to give that money back because they were paid by mistake. From member station KQED, Vanessa Rancaño reports.
15: When Napa resident Flor Rodriguez got a $9,000 rent relief check in the mail last December, it felt like an answer to her prayers. Dios no hay nada imposible, verdad? Even before the pandemic started, it was hard for her to make rent. First, wildfires put her out of her job picking grapes in Northern California's Napa vineyards. Then, COVID slashed her hours cleaning houses. She could no longer come up with $1,650 a month for her apartment. ¿Qué voy a hacer sin then, a social worker told Rodriguez about the state's COVID rent relief program. She got approved and says she used the money to cover her back rent. But five months later, in April, the state told her she had to return the money because she had provided, quote, inconsistent or unverifiable information on her application. She says she had no way to pay it back. She's a single mom and worried about what would happen to her 9- and 2-year-old daughters. California has issued almost 19,000 notices to tenants and landlords who were originally approved for rent relief, saying they actually weren't eligible. The vast majority of those went to people who'd already received the money from the state. It's part of an effort to catch fraud, says Jessica Hayes. She's the state administrator who manages the program. She declined to be interviewed for broadcast, but says program officials were caught between carefully handing out taxpayer money only to those who qualified and a mandate from state lawmakers to get aid out quickly. That made catching all fraud on the front end difficult. Once you're approved, any normal person thinks that's it, I'm done, my application is good. I've paid my landlord, I'm in a good place, I'm not gonna be evicted. Lorraine Lopez is a senior attorney for the Western Center on Law and Poverty. She's part of the legal team suing the state over rent relief denials. She says tenants like Rodriguez, who desperately needed the help, have gotten wrongfully caught up in efforts to prevent fraud. And that's incredibly scary for folks who already don't have a lot of money who are trying to get back on their feet. The state does give applicants a chance to appeal but the lawsuit argues the process is overly difficult. Many of the denial notices don't specify what additional material an applicant would have to provide to keep the money. This summer, a judge ordered California to stop issuing both demands for repayment and denials while the lawsuit moves forward. In Napa, Flor Rodriguez is still waiting on her appeal. Meanwhile, she's preparing to move. She's at home with her two-year-old daughter, Carmen, in her arms. On this day, she's getting a ride from a friend to go see another apartment. But Rodriguez is worried. Her appeal is still pending, and the rental market is incredibly tight. For NPR News, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in Napa.
4: This is NPR News.
15: I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up on WBOR's
0: Morning Edition, Ukrainians mourn as casualties mount across their country under the ongoing increased bombardment by Russia. It's seven
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, hosting an employment fair October 13th at Boston City Hall Plaza, 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. Start a career with purpose, upward mobility, and generous benefits. For more information on how you can join in building a better T, visit mbta.com careers.
17: I'm Robin Young. Wendell Pierce is the acclaimed star of TV shows The Wire and Treme, but playing the first black Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman was cause for self-reflection.
8: I had to consider my best days behind me. What have I created when it comes to family and friends? So this was a great
2: challenge and a great gift.
17: Next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Cloudy this morning, but gradually clearing by the afternoon. We'll have a high near 64. Tonight, temperatures fall as low as 50. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 72. About the same on Thursday. It's 46 degrees in Boston. A heads up for overnight drivers in Boston. The northbound O'Neill Tunnel, which carries I-93 through the city, will be closed from 11 tonight until 5 tomorrow morning. It'll be shut down between Mass Avenue and the Zakim Bridge for maintenance. You won't be able to access the northbound tunnel from the Mass Pike either. It's 721.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long term goals. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments and in securities involve the risk of loss. From Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan dot com. This is NPR.
4: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden.
10: And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We commonly tell the story of the war in Ukraine in enormous terms. The largest countries in Europe. Millions of refugees. Nightmarish effects on the whole world economy. This morning we tell the story of the war through the life of one small girl. NPR's Jason Bobian reports.
7: It was a Saturday afternoon. There was a buzz of excitement across much of the Kharkiv region. Ukrainian troops had just staged a major counteroffensive and the relentless Russian shelling around the city of Kharkiv had finally eased. 11-year-old Nasta Gritsenko and her parents, Andriy and Irina, had decided to spend the weekend at what they call their country house in the nearby city of Chihuiv. Nasta's parents went out to deliver some humanitarian food packets to elderly residents when three large explosions rocked the city. A neighbor, Mikhailo Kantamirev, shows where he found Nasta after the missile struck.
18: This is the fragment of the missile.
7: He says she was still alive, still conscious, lying next to the crater where the house had once stood.
18: And she asked uh, why uh, this happened to me. I did anything bad to them.
7: (sighs) Her parents heard the explosions. They could see the smoke. Irina Gritsenko's first thought was Nasta, and she raced towards their cottage. Every day, local officials in Ukraine announce grim statistics about the war. This number of people were injured, that number of people died. According to the UN, roughly 6,000 civilians have been killed in Ukraine over the last seven months of war. Nasta's father, Andrei Gritsenko, is adamant that his 11-year-old daughter shouldn't be a statistic. A statistic isn't something you pick up from the loading dock of the morgue, as Andre and Irina were forced to one cold, wet September morning. Nasta's body is carried down from the loading dock in a pink satin-lined coffin and slid into the back of a white cargo van. As my translator, Polina Litvinova, and I are getting into our own car, She tells me that I'm lucky I couldn't understand Irina crying in Russian.
18: Uh, I could hear her saying, uh, forgive me.
7: As hard as the scene at the morgue was to watch, she says, listening to a mother sobbing over her daughter's body was even harder.
18: She said, like, I don't want to live without you. Who will meet me when I come home from work? And so on and so on. She cried and said, forgive me, forgive me, please.
7: Outside a Soviet-era apartment block, there's a viewing of Nasta's open casket. Neighbors place bouquets of flowers on her coffin. A girl who appears to be about Nasta's age, 10 or 11 years old, cries inconsolably. Valentina Ovcherenko, who lives in a flat two floors below Nasta's family, is passing out small bags of sweets. She says people in the neighborhood have been crying for days over Nasta's death, but she says it's been the worst for Nasta's mother.
18: Her awesome. mother, Ira, uh, to balcony, my wanted to jump from the balcony and, like, was, uh, she was rescued from this.
7: Nasta's parents both work for a clothing manufacturing company. Their apartment isn't fancy. Their cottage in Chihuiv, with its apple trees and a vegetable garden, was also a simple, unassuming house before it was obliterated. It wasn't on a prime piece of land. It backed up against an oil storage depot. The same barrage of Russian missiles that killed Nasta blew up several large fuel tanks. Like most kids in Ukraine, Nasta had been attending online classes. Sitting on benches in the playground outside their apartment block, Nasta's parents tell me Nasta had always wanted a dog. This year, her 23-year-old brother found a white Labrador for her, which she was enchanted by. Nasta liked to sing and to watch patriotic videos on YouTube of Ukrainian soldiers.
18: Every time I came back home uh, from work, she uh, showed me videos and she said, mom, look at them, they have so much fun. Um,
13: She really believed that they would protect her.
7: Irina stares into the distance as she talks about her daughter. Kharkiv is just 30 miles from the Russian border. It's a predominantly Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, and it had close ties to Russia before the war. Irina and Andriy go back and forth between speaking Russian and Ukrainian as they talk about their daughter being killed by a Russian missile launched from Russian territory.
18: You know, I believe that not all people in Russia are so cruel uh, and horrible like uh, like Russian soldiers, but I just want to, the war to stop.
7: Nasta's funeral takes place under a cold, drizzling rain at a sprawling graveyard named Cemetery 18 in Kharkiv. Just a few hundred yards from her grave, a funeral is also taking place for a soldier in a quadrant of the cemetery adorned with yellow and blue Ukrainian flags. After the nails are pounded into Nastya's coffin and she's buried in the ground, Andriy comes over to me and Polina. Tell the world what the Russians did to my daughter, he says. Irina can barely walk her sister eases her into a car as they leave. A few days after the funeral, Irina says she's still trying to come to grips with the fact that there's a person in Russia who pushed the button, that launched the missile that killed her daughter.
18: ніколи не бажаю.
13: I don't uh, wish them death because I never wish anyone death, but I wish them uh, to suffer like we suffer and to feel all our pain
18: like uh, we feel uh, this pain.
7: Losing a child, she says, is the worst pain in the world. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine.
10: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Chinois. I Ahead on Morning Edition, the fallout from racist remarks made by the president of the Los Angeles City Council. It's 729.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Thought Forms, Custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities. Supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator. ClimateInteractive.org at ThoughtForms-Corp.com
19: from NPR News in Washington. I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden and other leaders of the G7 are expected to hear from Ukraine's president today. Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to press the G7 for more military aid, a day after Russian missile attacks on multiple cities in Ukraine killed 19 people and wounded more than 100 others. Kyiv was among the cities targeted by Moscow. The mayor of Lviv says his city was hit again today by Russian missiles and they knocked out power in some areas. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow says Russian President Vladimir Putin appears to be feeling the pressure to ramp up his attacks on Ukraine.
12: For weeks, we've seen growing criticism among hardliners here over the military strategy. Uh, They argue Russia has essentially been losing in Ukraine uh, because the Kremlin was fighting with one hand tied behind its back. In other words, Russia wasn't using the full force available to it. And in that sense, uh, yesterday's attacks appeared not to be a one-off, but signal this conflict is escalating.
19: Earlier today, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said Moscow would consider a meeting between Putin and President Biden at an upcoming G20 meeting should the White House make the offer. Nissan is the latest automaker to exit Russia as a result of the war in Ukraine. The Japanese automaker says it's selling its business in Russia to a state-owned entity. This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Noy. A Massachusetts search and rescue team is on its way home after a week in Florida. WBUR's John Bender reports the crew was helping with recovery efforts following Hurricane Ian.
8: The Massachusetts Task Force One spent the week looking for residents still trapped in Fort Myers. Anita Arnhem leads the Beverly-based urban search and rescue team of 46 people.
3: We found some folks sheltered in place and they were all helping each other's neighbor helping neighbor and there were several people who um, lost everything. So it was quite a devastating event.
8: Arnhem did not say how many search and rescue missions Task Force 1 completed. The team is expected to be back in Beverly by midweek. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender.
0: Transparency advocates are calling for votes cast in some legislative committees on Beacon Hill that can make or break potential legislation to be out in the open. Voters in 20 Massachusetts legislative districts will see a non-binding ballot question next month. It pushes for votes by state representatives and committee to be published online. Erin Leahy is the executive director of nonprofit Act on Mass. She says the ballot question is part of a long-term strategy to change the legislature's historically opaque ways of doing business.
3: We want over time for it to become politically untenable to be against these common-sense good governance reforms.
0: She says an average of 90 percent of voters have supported similar questions in the past. The Registry of Motor Vehicles in Plymouth will reopen today. The facility had been closed since the middle of last month because of a burst water pipe. Officials say the building needed extensive repairs. It's 7.33.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com.
0: Skies will clear this morning for a sunny afternoon in the low 60s. Tonight, it'll fall to the low 50s. Tomorrow, sunny, and in the low 70s. Thursday, partly sunny in low 70s again. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 733.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steven Skipp.
4: And I'm Leila Fadel. Russia is not the only country making threats of nuclear strikes.
10: North Korea is telling a story about its recent missile tests. It has conducted seven rounds of tests in the past couple of weeks. And the government now says those launches all simulated attacks on South Korea using tactical nuclear weapons. North Korea also restated its position that it's not interested in dialogue with the United States or South Korea.
4: NPR's Anthony Kuhn is in Seoul and joins us now. Hi, Anthony.
2: Hi,
10: Leila.
4: So tell us more about what North Korea had to say about its recent tests.
5: Uh, North Korea state media reported Monday that all seven of these recent tests involved nuclear-capable, short-range, intermediate-range, and submarine-launched ballistic missiles. And the tests simulated wartime attacks on South Korean ports, airports, and command facilities. And leader Kim Jong-un personally oversaw some of the launches. What state media reported about the intentions were that the drills were supposed to show the effectiveness and readiness of the North's tactical nuclear forces and also send a warning to the U.S. and South Korea at a time when the U.S. has been ramping up its own military exercises with South Korea and Japan.
4: And when did North Korea get tactical nuclear weapons and what does it change?
5: Uh, Experts believe that North Korea probably decided to get tactical nukes in 2019 after a failed summit in Hanoi between then-President Trump and Kim Jong-un, and that Kim uh, publicly announced his intention to get these weapons in January of 2021. Now, Lee ho who's a researcher at the Korea Institute for Defense Analyses, argues that these weapons are not new. What North Korea is trying to do is deploy them in new ways so that they can avoid being detected or intercepted by the US and South Korea. Here's what she said. She says, I think the variety of launches betray North Korean military units' fear of Kim Jong-un, who's demanding that the military come up with solutions and tactics. She adds that these tests are a result of that fear and, in a way, betray their vulnerabilities. So basically, she's skeptical that the North's tactical nuclear forces are as effective as Pyongyang claims.
4: But do North Korea's tactical nukes make nuclear war more likely?
5: Uh, Arguably, yes. North Korea recently updated its nuclear doctrine and wrote that doctrine into law, and Lee argues that these tests were meant to show that the military can enforce that law. The law says that North Korea can use its nukes preemptively, that is, It can launch them not because it's been attacked, but simply because it's losing in a conventional war. And previously, Kim Jong-un has been the only one with the authority to launch nukes. But now, Kim apparently intends to delegate authority to use tactical nukes to frontline military commanders so that they can win on the battlefield. And Mm. even if Kim is killed in a decapitation strike, North Korea can still retaliate.
4: Mm. At this point, is North Korea's nuclear arsenal complete?
5: Uh, No. Uh, Experts have been saying for some time that North Korea's plan was first to develop tactical nukes, then progress to upgrading intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, and nuclear tests. In other words, they want to show first that they can hit U.S. military bases in South Korea, Japan, and Guam, and then show that they can hit the U.S. mainland. Seoul and Washington have been watching for signs of these tests, and a logical time to do them would probably be after China's Communist Party Congress in late October.
4: NPR's Anthony Kuhn joining us from Seoul. Thank you. Thank you, Leila. Los Angeles is roiling in scandal as the city council president, Nori Martinez, stepped down after being caught making racist remarks
10: in a leaked recording. Yes, someone recorded her conversation in which she was discussing redistricting with two other council members, Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo. They were talking about how to keep a strong Latino presence on the LA City Council. Now some people are calling for all three members to resign.
4: For more, we're joined by KQED's Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. And just a warning, we're gonna be discussing the racist things that Martinez said. Hi, Saul. Hi. Okay, so just so just tell us exactly what was said and what happened in these recordings.
14: Okay, let me make this really simple because a lot was said. Yeah. In audio obtained by the LA Times, then council president Nuri Martinez compared the adopted black son of a white city council colleague to a changuito, that's Spanish for little monkey. Mm. And she uses this phrase, little short dark people. That's an apparent reference to Oaxacan immigrants. She also calls the LA County DA as being quote, with the blacks. Now council members, Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo were also part of this conversation in which the group discussed redistricting and Latino representation on the council. And there was a very prominent LA County labor leader also present.
4: Hmm. And so a lot of this racism directed at black people. How is the black community reacting?
14: Well, many in the black community are reacting with just anger and despondency and sadness to these comments. Hmm. Uh, here's how Irma Hall Wood, a black labor activist in LA, told me how she felt. We spoke at a church in South Los Angeles where black religious and civil rights leaders had gathered.
2: Hurt, angry, disappointed, I won't say the rest because I'm in the house of God, but I'm very disappointed, betrayed.
14: Some are also expressing concerns about how genuine some Latino leaders have been when they've talked about forming black-brown alliances around common issues like economic justice and police reform. In the past, there have been tensions between these communities over such issues as immigration and jobs, and there have been instances of Latino gangs targeting black residents in some neighborhoods. And the Black community has this long-term anxiety about really their place in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. They've seen their size, the size of their population, shrink relative to other communities. They're now under 10% of LA's population, while, of course, the Latino population has boomed uh, over the last generation or two, and Latinos now account for roughly half of LA's population.
4: Yeah, and the comments were also made during a conversation about redistricting and Latino political power. So can you give us some context about the political dynamics here?
14: Well, you know, it all orbits around political clout, right? I mean, where district lines are drawn is that's incredibly important to different racial and ethnic groups who want to make sure that they can elect a person who represents their interests and their communities and experiences at City Hall. Now people in favor of coalition building, they don't want that redistricting to become a zero sum game between black people and latinos in la although the council members who were captured on tape seem to be talking in just those terms mainly protecting the position and clout of latinos at city hall kqed's Saul gonzalez
4: in los angeles thank you for your time
14: thank you so much
0: This is NPR News. I'm Rupa in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, advice on how life partners can share the domestic workload. And in our next hour, monkeypox cases are on the decline, but some experts say there's still a lot of work to be done to protect against an outbreak of the virus. Cloudy skies gradually clear this morning, and we'll have a sunny afternoon in the low 60s. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 50s. Tomorrow, sunny and low 70s. About the same on Thursday. Showers are likely on Friday. It's 46 degrees in Boston at
16: 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling our biggest sustainability challenges, including the climate and water crises. Join Sarah Bloom Raskin and Rep. Jamie Raskin in conversation with Meghna Chakrabarty at Evening with Ceres on October 17th at the JFK Library. Tickets at ceres.org slash WBUR.
0: Now in business news, businesses in Massachusetts are feeling less optimistic about the economy. WBUR's Jonathan Kane reports on the latest Business Confidence Index from the trade group Associated Industries of Massachusetts
20: the survey finds employer confidence fell from August to September. It's at its lowest point since June. Associated Industries Vice President Christopher Geerin says a push and pull of several
21: factors is contributing to the decline.
12: You have surging inflation, you have rising interest rates and shrinking economic output. On the other hand, most employers, I think, are still feeling reasonably good about their company's prospects
20: and We have a persistently strong demand for workers. Guerin says a positive sign is raw material prices have dropped in recent months. However, he says many businesses are dealing with higher borrowing costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane.
0: Burlington's Lifetime Fitness plans to open housing units next year. More than 100 units will be located right next to the gym. Company executives tell the Boston Business Journal that gym membership will be included in the rent. Lifetime has only two other residential locations in Las Vegas and Miami. It's 744.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from Klaviyo, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place. With e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue, at klaviyo.com slash NPR.
4: It's Morning Edition from
10: NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. If you walk into a house where a man and a woman live and you ask who's making dinner, the answer is usually the woman. Okay, if a man does the housework in your home, no need to rise up and protest. I see you, but a 2020 Gallup poll finds that women still handle the majority of the domestic workload in this country. The solution to this imbalance may start with a better understanding of time. Here's Andy Tegel of NPR's Life Kit.
1: While research shows men are taking on more childcare and housework than ever before, women continue to perform more physical and emotional labor in their families, irrespective of age, income, or workloads. Sometimes called the mental load or the second shift, this is a phenomenon Eve Rodsky attributes to a fundamental mishandling of time. As a society, we've chosen to view and value men's time
22: as if it's diamonds and finite. And we've chosen to value
1: women's time as if it's infinite like sand. Rodsky is an attorney, activist, and author of the best-selling book Fair Play, which centers around closing the gender gap in domestic labor. She says you have to start with the belief that everyone's time is created equal, whether you bring home the bacon or cook it or both. Everybody around you
22: just gets 24 hours in a day. And if you love them and you want to build a partnership with
1: them, you have to value their time as equal to your time. But that can be harder to do than you think. There are a lot of toxic time messages out there, says Rodsky. Consider the phrase, time is money. Maybe you're a woman who feels obligated to do more at home because you bring home less pay or your job is more, quote unquote, flexible.
22: We have a pay gap in this society. And what is even more ironic is that when
1: women out-earn their partners, they still do more unpaid labor. Or have you ever had 5,000 items on your to-do list, but instead of asking for help, you say something along the lines of, I'll just do it myself. It's easier that way.
22: Oh my god, that's the worst one. By continuing to keep doing it yourself, uh, you will have to do it yourself
1: for the rest of your life. Trust me, I could keep going here. But what this all comes down to is that far too often, we undervalue the time spent keeping a home afloat. Either We expect someone else to magically find the time for housework, or we fail to budget for or acknowledge the time all this work takes up in our lives at all. When labor is invisible, it's very hard to value it. Visibility is value. So instead of just giving your partner an assignment or a grocery list, invite them to take an active role in the conception of the family calendar. Ask for buy-in for the bake sale. Encourage them to take the lead with that extended family group chat. And once you better understand the mental load, Voice that value where you see it. And so this can mean, oh my God, I had no
22: idea, because I've never picked the kids up from school, that you have to wait on a carpool line for an hour. I recognize that what you're doing is labor, and I
1: want to help share that labor with you. Another tip to help even out the scales? Establish regular check-ins to keep things running smoothly and avoid miscommunication. Find a time and style that works for you, then be consistent. That type of high cognition,
22: low emotion conversation, uh, whether it's five minutes a day on a daily basis, being able to check in about the next day and communicate, that's, that was the big through line for
1: success. When household labor is shared fairly, everyone can free up more time for what Rodsky calls unicorn space. You are more than just your roles as a parent, partner, or
22: professional. Unicorn space is really the space to be consistently interested in your own life to recognize that you deserve a permission to be unavailable from those roles.
1: For NPR's Life Kit, I'm Andy Tagle.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Layla Falden.
0: There's another hour coming up here on Morning Edition, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to tell us what's on deck today. Good morning, Tiziana. Did you have a good long weekend?
18: I did think you have to say, I thought for sure you'd then go, and I'm Rupa (laughs) Shanoi. Next time,
0: I'll next do that. Time. Next time.
18: Did you have a good weekend?
0: I did. Good. I didn't have a long one like you, but that's okay. I did some fishing, caught some small
18: mouse, mouth bass. So oh, was I'm glad fun. it wasn't a
0: mouse. I thought that's what you said. Yeah, were no.
18: say. <laughs> I just can't speak yet because I've been away. So, listen, we've got a lot today. Here's the 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 statistic that's sticking in my head: about thirty percent of municipalities in our state don't have primary care physicians, Hmm. which kind of blows my mind when you consider how much we rely on our primary care doctors. So lots of flaws in our state system, from funding to priorities. Causing and contributing to a shortage in primary care physicians, and we're actually going to take a pretty deep look at that today on the show. I think it's going to be quite interesting
0: very interesting. I wonder if it's about salaries or what. What else have you got going on?
18: Uh, we're also going to continue our conversation on equity in the cannabis uh, industry and sports
11: because it's the beginning there's of the so week much for sports us. to talk about right That's now. Okay,
18: right. thank you, Tsianna. Thanks, Rupert.
11: Very
0: nice to see you. That's you Radio too. Boston today at eleven and three.
11: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus, committed to reimagining the office for the needs of today's workforce. Flexible office space tours available at cic.com enterprise. And Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the
23: surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how.
0: Learn more at wbur.org cars. The cloudy skies are supposed to clear over the next few hours, and by this afternoon, we should get some sun. Temperatures will be in the low 60s, clear, and around 50 tonight. Tomorrow, sunny and low 70s. A repeat of that on Thursday. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 752.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep.
4: And I'm Leila Fawadil. The Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Annie Proulx is best known for her fiction, The Shipping News and Brokeback Mountain, to name just two. Her newest book, though, is something very different. Fen, Bog, and Swamp is nonfiction and a love letter to America's wetlands, ecosystems that are rapidly disappearing. Here's Proulx reading from the book.
2: Before the last wetlands disappear, I wanted to know more about the world we are losing. What was a world of fens, bogs, and swamps, and what meaning did these peatlands have, not only for humans, but for all other life on Earth?
4: She says she was compelled to write this book because of the worsening effects of climate change.
2: It began when I found that I could not concentrate on writing fiction, which is what I am usually writing, I was too concerned with what was happening to the natural world, and I felt I knew very little about wetlands. So the way I learn about something is to write about it, so I began reading and taking notes and scribbling. After a while, I had something that looked like an essay. and. I sent it to my agent, not particularly expecting it to be published, but I thought it might have a place somewhere. To my surprise, she suggested that it could be a book.
4: And in this journey of of learning, what did you learn about um, what's happening to fens,
2: bogs, and swamps? How much time do we have? (laughs) We tend to tag everything in the natural world in terms of what use it is to humans. And I was curious to know how it fit in with the great scheme of life, how it belonged to other parts of the world, how the things were knit together uh, between land and water and creatures and weather and climate change. I wasn't looking for benefits to humans as an explanation of anything. I was looking for how these guys worked with each other. But also, I was very curious about human responses to these wetlands. So that took me into the history. That, of course, was the fun part, poking around with the people of the Fen, the battle in the bogs and the various swamps in North America that were drained and made into productive soil.
4: You talk about poking around in history, and you write in your book that the history of wetlands is the history of their destruction. Could you talk about that?
2: That's, I think, a very pertinent way of saying it. Because the peatlands have never been regarded by most people as something that's a necessary part of life, but as an obstruction, something that's in the way, the ideal of course is agriculture for most people. It wasn't a measure of any kind of utility to talk about peat producing wetlands as helpful. So, it was really a change of attitude more than anything else that I stumbled on. It's really hard to read about this sort of thing because people insist on thinking of the natural world only in terms of utility to humanity. Hmm. We don't see ourselves as part of the system, but as lords and rulers of the natural world. So, that was lesson one.
4: And that's how we are where we are today when you talk about climate change and destruction yes. of the planet. Your book, when you write about the wetlands, you write about beauty in places where humans have often described bad smells and things that are ugly, and you see beauty in them.
2: That was actually quite a lot of fun, looking at the way people regarded the fens, And we started out with the fens because... It's a succession from fen to bog to swamp, gradually drying up all the time. Mm. The problem with destroying the fens, bogs, and swamps is they are holding in CO2 and methane gas. And the more we rip them up, the more CO2 and methane comes floating into the atmosphere, and the faster the earth will be warming. But that doesn't occur to us to consider that as a real problem for many people, except for ecologists and those deeply concerned about the climate crisis. In the book,
4: you also write about indigenous communities that work with the land, within the natural system, to understand it, to live on it, to survive within it, and then how North American and European colonial governments, British imperialism in particular, saw nature as something to be exploited. How has that shifted when you look at today's world and the landscape?
2: I'm not so sure it has shifted. I think we still do look at swamplands and bogs and fens as candidates for drainage. And I think there will forever be people who want to drain wetlands. They don't see how they could be useful, but there are signs here and there that readapting the idea of utility to humans, there's a place for wetlands. Many gardeners buy bales of peat that's been dug up and dried and packaged because it enriches their garden soil. Pete has the extraordinary ability to hold many times its weight in water.
4: You end the book with this line. In the end, all humans will be haunted by waters. What do you want readers to walk away with? Is this book a call to action?
2: No, it isn't a call to action and has been mistaken as such. Mm. It's simply what it was for me. That is to make a differentiation between the kinds of forms that the wetlands that make peat take, because they've been so much in the news, just to know what the difference is between fen, bog, and swamp, to be able to go into a wetland and look around at it and say, aha, I know what this is. This is a swamp. It's full of trees. Or this is a bog full of quaking sphagnum moss. It's more didactic than the call to arms. That's just not my thing. Annie Prue is the author of Fen
4: Bog and Swamp: A Short History of Peatland Destruction and Its Role in the Climate Crisis. Annie, thank you so much for your time.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me.
4: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel, and
10: I'm Steve Inskeep.
11: I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Ukrainians vow to respond as they shelter underground. The increased Russian bombardment continues and casualties are mounting. It's Tuesday, October 11th. This is WB Moore's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, authorities are investigating a police shooting in San Antonio. A 17-year-old remains on life support. Also, experts believe monkeypox cases across the country are on the decline.
3: Where we are now is certainly showing the reflection of what can happen when you actually commit the tools that you have to fight an outbreak.
0: And this hour, a Massachusetts Little League coach takes his team to a national tournament and it's a disaster on the field.
8: I sat on a picnic table outside a cabin wondering if I'd officially ruined baseball. For a dozen boys sleeping peacefully inside.
0: But his players' responses surprised him. Cloudy skies clear today. It'll be in the low 60s. It's 8.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. In Ukraine, officials say the death toll from yesterday's country-wide airstrikes has risen to 20 people, An additional 100 others are in critical condition. From Kiev, NPR's Yulian Haida reports most of the country is huddled in bomb shelters for a second morning in a row. Since the spring,
20: the war in Ukraine has mostly subsided to eastern and southern regions. But after Russia blamed Ukraine for attacking a vital bridge in Crimea, Dozens of rockets and suicide drones rained from the sky in every corner of Ukraine yesterday. Rescuers worked around the clock to pull people from under the rubble of apartment buildings and office complexes. This morning, Ukrainian officials warned people to stay in shelters as air defense systems attempt to fight off another round of attacks. Julian Haida, NPR News. Kiev.
3: President Biden will discuss Russia's missile attacks on Ukraine. He'll join leaders of other G7 nations in a virtual conference call today. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to join them. Biden and Zelensky also talked yesterday, and Biden says the U.S. is committed to helping Ukraine defend itself. In Florida, closing arguments are scheduled today in the sentencing phase of the trial of the gunman who killed 17 people at a Parkland high school. NPR's Greg Allen reports the jury will decide whether Nicholas Cruz receives a sentence of life in prison or the death penalty.
9: Cruz, a troubled former student, went on a shooting rampage at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018, killing 14 students and three staff members. He's already pleaded guilty to the murders. Over the trial's six months, jurors heard students and teachers who survived the shooting describe the attack. They heard graphic testimony from medical examiners and viewed surveillance videos showing Cruz firing into classrooms and hallways, shooting some victims repeatedly. Cruz's defense lawyers presented testimony from counselors and a doctor to make the case that he suffers from fetal alcohol syndrome, a condition that they say affects his reasoning and behavior. The jury will begin deliberations on Wednesday. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami.
3: With less than a month to go before the midterm elections, the top contenders for the open Senate seat in Ohio have debated. Republican author and financier J.D. Vance blamed Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan for failing to help stop the number of undocumented people coming into the country.
24: He talks about wanting to support a stronger border. He talks about wanting to be bipartisan and get things done. Well, Tim, you've been in Congress for 20 years, and the border problem has got worse and worse and worse.
3: Meanwhile, Ryan criticized Vance's investments, saying his purposeful choices have helped fuel inflation in the U.S.
24: J.D. Vance has invested into companies in China. The problem we're having now with inflation is our supply chains all went to China. And guys like him have made a lot of money off that.
3: That audio is courtesy of NextStar Media. The Ohio Senate campaign is seen as very close. This is NPR. Jury selection is underway in Los Angeles in the sexual assault trial of former movie producer Harvey Weinstein. He's facing 11 charges of assaulting women over about a decade. Weinstein is already serving 23 years in prison for rape and other sexual assault convictions in New York. Electric vehicles have massive batteries and General Motors has some big ideas for those batteries. The automaker is launching a new business unit called GM Energy. As NPR's Camilla Dominowski explains, the idea is to turn a parked car into a part
23: of the electric grid. With most appliances, electricity runs one way, from the outlet to the device. But some electric vehicles can store power and push it back later. For instance, Ford's F-150 Lightning can be a power source in an outage, a big selling point. GM says its electric Silverado will be able to act as a battery for everyday life, which could cut bills and strengthen the grid. GM Vice President Travis Hester gives an example.
8: We'll be able to store up energy in the day, and they'll be able to bring it home to use of an evening which is really going to help out with electrical loads
23: new hardware will be rolling out late next year camila dominovsky npr news
3: what was hurricane julia has broken up off the pacific coast of guatemala and el salvador julia first hit the east coast of central america from the caribbean sea then it stormed across the isthmus to emerge in the pacific ocean Hurricane Julia and then the tropical storm left at least 25 people dead in El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. I'm Corva
0: Coleman, NPR News. From WPOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The missile strikes in Ukraine have prompted activists here in Boston to action. The Ukrainian Cultural Center of New England hosted a rally on the State House steps last night. Organizer, organizer Katerina Kucheruk says demonstrators are calling for more support from Western governments,
18: and also it's just for people to know that uh, the full-scale war in Ukraine is still happening, and people are dying every day.
0: Russian strikes hit several cities across Ukraine yesterday, killing several people and injuring dozens more. The U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments today on an animal welfare law that could affect how pigs are treated in Massachusetts and beyond. The case involves a California law with similarities to, su- to a successful Massachusetts ballot question requiring more stay- space for some farm animals. Alden Bourne reports.
19: New rules for pigs were set to take effect this past August, but they were put on hold after a restaurant trade group in the state filed a lawsuit arguing that Massachusetts should wait to see how the Supreme Court ruled on similar restrictions passed by California voters in 2018. Both states would require pork produced outside the state but sold within to also meet the new standards. That could be an unconstitutional restriction on interstate commerce. Stephen Clark leads the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, which represents about 1,800 members.
25: The biggest concern we heard was
24: going to be about the availability and the cost of compliant pork in the state.
19: Clark says he expects a decision from the high court by next June. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne.
0: The Massachusetts Department of Public Health is receiving federal funding to study the genes of pathogens like bacteria and viruses. Department leaders tell the Boston Globe they'll get $25 million to build on research that gained momentum during the pandemic. Part of the work will involve studying how microbes respond to vaccines and antibiotics. The man convicted of kidnapping a 23-year-old woman from a Boston nightclub and later killing her will be sentenced today. Jazzy Correa was out celebrating her birthday in 2019 when Lewis Coleman abducted her. Correa's body was found days later in Delaware. Coleman is expected to receive a life sentence. It's 808.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum in person on October 24th. Hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org.
0: Skies will clear throughout the morning, and it'll be a sunny day by this afternoon. The high today will be in the mid-60s, clear overnight with a low around 50, mostly sunny tomorrow with a high in the 70s. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 808.
16: WBUR supporters include Avalara Sales Tax Automation for businesses of all sizes, designed to simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates and automatic filing. Learn more at avalara.com. It's Morning
4: Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And
10: I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. How do Republicans view their chances of recapturing Congress this fall? They are favored to make gains, as the party out of power often does. They need just a handful of seats to control the House. And as we'll discuss this morning, they need a net gain of just one to win the Senate. But it's been hard work to gain that one. Republicans remain favored, for example, to win a Senate seat in Ohio. But J.D. Vance slipped behind in some polls and in a debate last evening, Democrat Tim Ryan tied Vance to Donald Trump.
24: Donald Trump said to J.D. Vance, all you do is kiss my ass to get my support. He said that. That's bad. I'm for Ohio. I don't kiss anyone's ass like him. Ohio needs an ass kicker, not an ass kisser.
10: Vance responded that was a nice rehearsed line multiple republican candidates are having a little more trouble than expected yet they still do have a shot to get that one seat so let's talk this over with scott jennings who is a republican strategist welcome back to the program
24: good morning thank you
10: uh republicans have been pretty open about saying some candidates are weaker than they'd hoped on your side but now we've seen some of them in action we've gotten into the fall how are they doing
24: well i think some are better than others of course Uh, jd vance who you mentioned there in ohio has come around. He had a slow summer. His fundraising has been rather slow since he won his primary. But it feels to most Republican strategists like Vance has moved into at least a small lead in a state that candidly for us is the best state on the map. It's the reddest of the target states.
10: When we're talking about the six or seven where there's a where there's a tight race. Yeah. And it seems like National Democrats agree with you. I believe National Democrats still have not spent a lot of money in Ohio, which suggests they don't think they can really win there.
24: Yeah, the the national apparatus is not, although Ryan, the Democrat there, like most Democrat Senate candidates, has raised a tremendous amount of money. And that's one advantage for Democrats for the last several cycles uh, is that their small-dollar donors around the country give directly to their candidates. On the Republican side, our small-dollar donors tend to give to Donald Trump. And so our candidates have you know, candidate to candidate, less money to spend. Now, hmm. we've had super PAC spending to to balance it out in Ohio, but the most efficient dollars in a campaign come right out of a candidate's committee.
10: I'm glad I'm glad you you mentioned Trump there because, of course, a number of the candidates who are having trouble a little bit on the Republican side are people who've tied themselves to Donald Trump, which you need to do to win a primary. I think of Adam Laxall in Nevada. I think of Blake Masters in Arizona. We could name some others. They're people who have needed to embrace lies about the 2020 election um you're close to mitch mcconnell he's been honest about the election donald trump lost trump is still out there campaigning that he won causing candidates to repeat variations on that and that does raise a question for me why should republicans who know the truth vote for someone who doesn't tell it
24: well republicans are balancing a lot of issues and and their votes and even republican candidates i uh, i'm sorry republican voters i think that Uh, agree with uh, McConnell uh, in in your framing there about the the, the 2020 election, are also looking at a country in which they do not agree with much of anything Joe Biden is doing or what the Democratic Congress is doing. And so it's not really a bunch of one issue voters. It's a bunch of multi-issue voters who are trying to balance a lot of stuff. And on balance, uh, they think Joe Biden's administration needs a check and balance. So in some cases they're willing to support candidates that they may not have supported in the primary uh, but certainly think are going to be a uh, a roadblock to Biden for the next two years.
10: Well, let's talk about one of those candidates, Adam Laxalt, uh, in Nevada. And he is somebody who gets categorized as an election denier to some extent. But Republicans are seen as having a real chance in Nevada. There's a large Latino vote in, in Nevada. And I know that, that Republicans have been going for a larger share of that vote. Do you see a real chance to add to your party's coalition there?
24: Uh, yes, Republicans are quite excited about movement in Hispanic voters toward the Republican Party. We've seen it in a few uh, races already this year, and there's just evidence that working class Hispanic voters, like all working class Americans, are moving away from Democrats and moving towards the Democrat Party. Regarding Laxalt specifically, uh, Republicans regard this as the top pickup opportunity. They think Laxalt's running a good campaign. Uh, So of everything on the map, this is numero uno, so to speak, for uh, Republicans, uh, Nevada. If they win that one and can hold serve everywhere else, uh, they'll be home uh, for the majority.
10: You know, the Pennsylvania campaign has been very personal, of course. Uh, John Fetterman, the Democrat, mocked Dr. Oz for much of the summer for living actually in New Jersey. Uh, Dr. Oz has responded by talking about Fetterman's uh, stroke. But let's... Get to the essence of the job here uh, Fetterman at least can make a case Although he's been criticized that he's got experience in government. He's lieutenant governor's mayor of a city He's done various things. He's also been accused of not doing very much, but he has a record What is the case that dr? Oz setting aside the personal issues and where he lives? What is the case that dr? Oz is prepared to be a member of the United States Senate?
24: Very simple uh, the case Republicans will make is that he's prepared to be a check and balance against Joe Biden who's not Uh, overwhelmingly popular in Pennsylvania. And the case against Fetterman Republicans make is that he's just far too liberal, especially on the issue of crime. For the Republicans there, Oz has had persistent image issues since the primary. He was pummeled with attack ads. Over 20 million in the primary spent against him. And so he's been trailing, but the issue that has reeled him in has been crime. And they've been pounding Fetterman on uh, liberal crime policies. I think that race is at this point a toss up and again, if Republicans hold and can win either Georgia or Nevada, they're home for the majority.
10: Um, you mentioned one thing that Joe Biden is not terribly popular in Pennsylvania or anywhere. If it were strictly a referendum on Joe Biden, Democrats might automatically lose. But the former president is in the picture and campaigning in a way that former presidents almost never do. How does that complicate things for your side?
24: Yeah, he's not terribly popular either. Uh, and he has a unique property. Uh, he can motivate people to vote uh, for and against whatever it is he's for. So. Uh, <laughs> remains to be seen on uh, on who's a more potent uh, vote getter or vote uh, uh, turner offer <laughs> in Pennsylvania, uh, but
10: uh, he he does complicate the picture, no question. Scott Jennings is a Republican strategist. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. See you
4: and now to los angeles where some of the most powerful names in latino politics are caught in a racist scandal three city council members were caught on a leaked recording talking about the state of latino political power and saying racist things a warning i'm about to repeat some of what was said to convey just how awful it was. The now former president of the Los Angeles City Council, Nori Martinez, she stepped down from that position over this, as heard using the term little darky to describe the black son of a white city council member. She goes on to describe him as an accessory and a quote, little monkey. The two other council members present don't stop her. They participate in the conversation as does a top labor leader in LA. The city's mayor, Eric Garcetti and others are calling on Martinez and the two other council members to give up their seats for more on this we're now joined by gustavo Ariano. he's an l.a times columnist and wrote a scathing column about all this good morning gustavo good morning so i just want to start with what you were thinking when you first heard this recording
26: disgusted i mean when you are hearing words that you know are racist have been around and you hear more and more insults and these are elected officials some of the most powerful latinos in the country you're just absolutely disgusted and you think, what on earth are you saying and why? And if you hear the tape, it gets worse and worse and worse.
4: Hmm. What are the wider implications here? I mean, you write in your column, this isn't small town politics here. And as you said, these four people are some of the most powerful politicians in the country. Um, what are the big implications here?
26: There is no trust right now of the political system in. Los Angeles and the city council. This is a city council where you've had uh, other polit- uh, you know, other council members indicted, other council members in scandals, and now you have the supposed liberal, even on the left, uh, leaders, Democrats, caught up in stuff that you throw at Donald Trump, that you throw at Republicans. Like, how good of a politician can you be if you're using that exact same rhetoric, and in, in many cases, worse?
4: Mm. Now, you point out the question of Latino representation, which was being discussed at this meeting, is legit in a city that's almost half Latino and only has about a third of the council but this uh, using racist remarks attacking black people basically is not the way
26: no this is a city that has long had racial tensions between black and Latinos and this helps nothing at all and it also goes counter though to recent movements in the, you know just recently of politicians Latinos saying like we need to make coalitions with yeah. our black council members because there's the population is getting smaller and smaller so you respect what they've done in the past they throw it all the way and by the way there's also insults against Oaxacans, uh, uh, Latinos themselves calling them, this is Martinez calling them ugly and small and short like there's yeah. insults against Armenians LGBT folks everything
4: oh no one was spared it sounds like Um, So how does that impact these coalitions, all this coalition building, as you point out, has been happening in the recent years about overlapping interests? How does that then impact this coalition building?
26: The silver lining is that everyone is disgusted. There is so little support for Nuri Martinez, Kevin DeLeon, Gil Cedillo, Ron Herr, the labor leader, he resigned. And you have a younger generation of Latino politicians who have been fighting this old guard for the past couple of years and saying, see, what did we tell you now? It's our turn. But, you know, I have been following Latino politics in Southern California for decades in terms of at least least reading it. And this is something that happens again and again. Old guard falls down, the new guard comes up, say never again. And then it happens again.
2: Mm.
4: Now, the four people involved in this conversation that were on this tape, they've apologized. But what do you think what else needs to happen in this case?
26: They all need to go. I mean, they will not, uh, you know, just last night in LA City Hall, there was a vigil. I slept at 11 o'clock at night and there was bands, there was candlelights, there were speeches. People are not going to let this go at all. Remember, we're only, what, three days away from the release of this. Right. It's not going to go.
4: Well, the last question before you go in the few seconds we have left. Is there recovering from the lack of trust?
26: You're going to have to talk to a lot of people. The fact that the Democratic Party of Los Angeles County is asking them, you have to step down. U.S. Senator uh, Alex Padilla, who was uh, the mentor to Nuri Martinez, saying you have to step down, everyone's telling them. But this ruins politics, especially Latino political power, for years, if not a long time. I'm not a politician. I don't see what's going to happen, but I know they're going to try.
4: LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano, thank you so much for your time.
26: Gracias.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, experts say monkeypox may not pose the threat it once did, but there's still plenty to do to protect the country from an outbreak of the virus. It's 820.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service
18: until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. A California entrepreneur is building affordable homes in South Central Los Angeles at half the usual cost. How? By saying no to public funding.
9: Low-income communities need development, they need new capital, but they need it to be done in a way that really benefits the entire community. And one of the underlying principles we have is same neighbors, better neighborhoods.
18: That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Clouds gradually clear away this morning. It'll be sunny this afternoon, and we'll have a high near 64. Tonight, temperatures fall as low as 50. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 72. About the same on Thursday. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 821.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scribner, publisher of Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, author of All the Light We Cannot See. Cloud Cuckoo Land is about the power of books to unite us available in paperback in bookstores and online. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Insperity, providing HR support for 30-plus years, including access to benefits and HR technology. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. This is NPR.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Layla
4: Falded. Just a few months ago, it looked like the U.S. had lost its chance to get monkeypox under control. Cases were soaring, and vaccines were in short supply. But now the story has taken a turn, and this time, in a good direction. In fact, some disease experts are even raising the idea that the U.S. could nearly eliminate the virus. Here to talk about the news are NPR health correspondents, Ping Huang and Michaeline Ducleff. Hi.
27: Good morning. Good morning.
4: Good morning. So, Ping, it doesn't seem… Like we're hearing the same alarm bells about monkeypox anymore? Why
27: is that? Well, that's because the outbreak has legitimately simmered down. Yes, the U.S. has had more than 26,000 confirmed cases since May. And unfortunately, two people have died from monkeypox in the U.S., But if you look at the trends, new cases have been falling since the peak in early August, and it's the lowest that it's been since June. Dr. Bahuma Tatanji, an infectious disease doctor at Emory University, says that's a huge accomplishment. I think that where we are now is certainly um, I would
3: say the best case scenario in terms of really showing the reflection of what can happen when you actually commit um, the tools that you have to fight an outbreak.
27: Given the way that things look, the CDC says cases are probably going to plateau or decline over the next few weeks and fall significantly over the next few months. That's because the data shows that cases are still mostly concentrated among people with multiple sex partners and primarily gay and bisexual men and trans women. So as people within these populations get immunity from the virus, either by recovering from infections or getting vaccinated, the virus is finding fewer and fewer new people that it can spread to.
4: So, Mike Lane, this wasn't always a given, right? There was a lot of concern initially that monkeypox could start spreading widely, especially places like daycares or in schools.
25: Have we seen that at all? You know, we haven't seen that. There has been very little spread to children just across the board. I was looking at the data from the CDC the other day, and right now, only about point. of cases have been in kids below age 16, so very few Hmm. cases. And there's been no evidence the virus has spread in schools or daycare centers. If a person comes to school sick with monkeypox, there's no evidence they caught it there or that the virus has spread to anyone else.
4: So Ping mentioned most cases are still among men who have sex with men. Do scientists have an understanding for why this might be the case and why monkeypox hasn't spread? much among cisgender women or children?
25: Yes, so several studies actually recently are starting to answer this question. One of those studies was published in the journal Science. And what they found was that monkeypox spreads at very different rates in different groups of people. And that rate depends on people's sexual activity. Remember, monkeypox spreads primarily through contact during sex. In this study, scientists created a mathematical model of the current outbreak and found that outbreaks are very likely in sexual networks where a small number of people have a high number of sexual partners. Outside these kinds of networks, outbreaks of monkeypox are actually really rare because the virus just doesn't spread very well between people. So it isn't a virus that spreads all that well outside of sex. Absolutely. You know, a big concern with schools and daycares was largely because the virus can, in some instances, very rare instances, spread through saliva. So you can get it by being up close in somebody's face while they're talking or coughing. But another study that came out recently showed that there isn't very much virus found in people's upper respiratory tracts. Instead, the virus particles are primarily located on the skin and in the anus where the lesions are. Otherwise, there isn't much virus elsewhere.
4: Okay, I'm gonna turn back to you, Ping. Given the way things are going, is monkeypox still a public health emergency in the US?
27: Yeah, it's still officially a public health emergency, and there's still work to be done. You know, the gains that we've been talking about, the cases coming down, um, while they're heading in the right direction, they're happening unevenly. And you know, the most recent CDC data shows that monkeypox cases are down dramatically in white men, but nearly 70% of cases are now being found in Black or Latino men. All of this means that the outbreak could still use the national resources, the national coordination that comes with being a public health crisis.
4: Do we know why the numbers are much higher among Black and Latino men? Is this access to health care or?
27: You know, we've seen the same thing with COVID where the people with the education, the resources, the networks get access to the resources and the vaccines first. And then you're sort of left with a more diffuse group of people who are harder to reach, who aren't necessarily connected in the same way to all the resources. So I think that's what we're seeing now. I think that's what I've heard from other experts as well.
4: So at this point, With enough time, does the U.S. have a shot at getting rid of monkeypox?
27: There are a lot of different opinions on this. Um, Dr. Jeffrey Klosner, for one, he's an infectious disease doctor at the University of Southern California. He's super optimistic.
12: I think we can expect to see, you know, uh, certainly, um, you know, regional elimination, potentially national elimination where we would not see a uh, sustained number of cases.
25: So this is Um I want to jump in here and push back a little bit because... I think there are several reasons why eliminating this virus is going to be really hard, perhaps impossible. Mm. For starters, there's good evidence now that the virus spreads cryptically. That is, some people have monkeypox but don't know it. They're either asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms, but they are still contagious. And when a disease spreads this way, so hiddenly, kind of hidden transmissions, it can be extremely difficult to eliminate, as you can imagine. On top of that, you know, monkeypox cases are still rising in many countries around the world. Outside North America and Europe, people have had very little access to the vaccine. Over in Nigeria, monkeypox has been spreading in people for seven years, and for most of that time, almost completely under the radar, and yet the country still hasn't been offered any vaccine. You know, as long as monkeypox in these other countries spreads this way, it is likely going to be a problem here in the U.S., at least at some level. And Ping,
4: is that your sense as
25: well?
27: Yeah, I I think that viruses can be really, really hard to predict, and we're now hearing of some evidence that the monkeypox virus is going through huge changes as it spreads, and we don't really know what those implications are yet. So a lot of the people that I've talked with said they can certainly see how the U.S. can get to a place where monkeypox is not necessarily a public health emergency of national concern, but is still a problematic disease that looks like a lot of other STDs.
4: NPR Health Correspondents Ping Wong and
27: Micheline Duklev.
4: Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. This is NPR News.
0: This is WPR's Morning Edition. Up next, outrage is growing as authorities investigate the police shooting of a 17-year-old in San Antonio and how Russia is influencing military coups in West Africa. It's 829.
19: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Officials in Ukraine say yesterday's Russian missile attacks targeting multiple cities left at least 20 people dead and more than 100 wounded. Dozens of missiles were fired by Russian forces, hitting cities that included the capital, Kiev, Dnipro and Kharkiv. Air raid sirens sounded again today in parts of Ukraine. A second day of missile attacks is reported in Lviv in Zaporizhia. Ukraine's president is expected to press President Biden and the other leaders of G7 nations for more military aid when they hold talks today. Here's NPR's Giles Snyder. President
20: Biden is expected to join a video call with the other G7 leaders and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is to participate at the top of the meeting. The White House says the G7 leaders will discuss holding Russian President Vladimir Putin accountable. Putin has said he personally authorized the attacks in retaliation for the weekend explosion on the only bridge linking Russia to the occupied Crimean Peninsula.
19: The U.N. General Assembly is expected to hold more discussions today about how to respond to Russia's annexation of four regions of Ukraine, including Luhansk. A vote to condemn that annexation as illegal is expected this week. Nissan says it's exiting Russia and selling its business there to a state-owned entity. This is NPR News. Jury selection is expected to continue today in Los Angeles in the rape and sexual assault trial of former Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. He's pleaded not guilty to 11 counts. Weinstein is currently serving a 23-year sentence in New York for a conviction there. The Republican and Democratic candidates in Ohio's Senate race squared off last night in Columbus. Karen Kassler with Ohio Public Radio says this was the first of two planned debates.
13: Tim Ryan said he stood up to his party as a Democratic congressman and blasted Republican J.D. Vance for appearing at a rally last month where Trump used a crude phrase to describe Vance as begging for his support. Vance pointed out Ryan's 100% Democratic voting record in Congress with a seasonal reference.
24: We're getting close to Halloween and Tim Ryan is put on a costume where he pretends to be a reasonable moderate.
13: While Vance has repeated unproven claims about the 2020 election, he said he will accept the results of this year's vote, as did Ryan. The open seat is held by Republican Senator Rob Portman, who's retiring, but the race is close enough that Democrats see it as a possible pickup. For NPR News, I'm Karen Kessler in Columbus.
19: Wall Street futures are mixed this morning ahead of the open. Dow futures are down two points. S&P futures are up six. NASDAQ futures are down 12 points. I'm Dave Mattingly, NPR News in Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chinoy. Massachusetts voters in 20 legislative districts will see a non-binding question on this November's ballot. It asks whether votes made by their state representatives in committee should be made public. A final decision on whether to do that would be up to the lawmakers themselves. WBUR's Amy Moon
25: reports. In most states, committee votes are published online. In Massachusetts, that only happens for the state Senate, not the House. Advocacy group Act On Mass pushed to include this question on the ballot in an effort to create more accountability on Beacon Hill. Here's Executive Director Erin Leahy.
15: We actually have one of the least transparent state houses
13: in the whole country. And this lack of transparency allows only a few decision-makers to decide the fate of bills in our legislature.
25: Backers of the status quo emphasize there's a difference between votes to move bills forward through committee and votes on passage. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Moon.
0: The union representing Lawrence Public Schools is urging state education officials to come back to the bargaining table. The Eagle Tribune reports that the state education commissioner walked away from the last session. The union is arguing for better pay for Lawrence paraprofessionals and support staff. The next round of negotiations is set for later this month. A team of engineers and physicians from MIT and Mass General Brigham is reporting progress in efforts to find an easier way to deliver insulin than a traditional injection. Instead, they want to use a new kind of capsule. In tests with animals, the new capsule increased the amount of medicine absorbed. Gastroenterologist and MIT engineering professor Giovanni Traverso says the capsule could reduce a barrier for diabetes care.
9: Having a way of administering medications like insulin and others that today require, usually require an injection can really be transformative for patients and that they don't have to be trained to inject and also they don't have to manage the actual uh, sharps uh, after injection.
0: Researchers are working toward conducting tests in people. It's 835.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession, with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, now through October 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
0: Skies will clear this morning for a sunny afternoon in the low 60s. Tonight, it'll fall to the low 50s. Tomorrow, sunny, and in the low 70s. Thursday, partly sunny, and low 70s again. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 835.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash npr this is npr
10: it's morning edition from npr news i'm steven Skip.
13: and i'm leila Fadel.
4: a teenager eating in his car in a mcdonald's parking lot was shot by a rookie police officer just over a week ago that teen is on life support and authorities are investigating the shooting texas public radio's Marianne navarro has more on the incident in san antonio
23: Officer James Brennan had been with the San Antonio Police Department for just seven months when he was dispatched to the McDonald's for an unrelated disturbance call the night of October 2nd. On body camera footage released by the police department, he's heard identifying a car in the parking lot as a vehicle that fled from him the night before. The video shows Brennan as he approaches the car and suddenly opens the driver's side door. 17-year-old Eric Gantu is seen sitting inside. He orders Gantu to get out. Get out of the car. Seconds later, Brennan is heard firing several shots at the car as it backs up and then more shots as it moves through the parking lot. Cantu suffered multiple gunshot wounds. A female passenger, also 17, was uninjured. Cantu's lawyer, Brian Powers, said in a statement yesterday that his client is in critical condition. Three days after the shooting, the San Antonio Police Department announced in a video statement that it had terminated Brennan. Police Chief William McManus told San Antonio news affiliate KENS 5 that Brennan's actions were not justified.
16: Nothing that that officer did that night were in accordance with our training or our policies.
23: Attempts to reach Brennan and the police union for comment were unsuccessful. gantu was initially charged with evading detention in a vehicle and assaulting a police officer. But on Friday, Bear County District Attorney Joe Gonzalez said at a news conference recorded by local station News 4 WOAI that his office had dropped the charges against Cantu.
16: In exercising my discretion, what I decided to do was to for now dismiss this case so that his family can be by his side.
23: Officials with the San Antonio police say they support Gonzalez's decision to drop the charges. Both the police department and the Bexar County District Attorney's Civil Rights Division say they've launched investigations into the shooting. For NPR News, I'm Marianne Navarro in San Antonio.
10: The NFL promises that this time it really is addressing head injuries like the ones suffered by Tua Tagovailoa.
24: Tagovailoa, oh boy. Getting up. Oh, my goodness. That's an awful, awful sight to see. They will take him to the sideline
10: immediately. The Miami Dolphins' dark quarterback took a hit in a game against Buffalo. He stumbled after standing, but managed to pass the concussion protocol and return to the field. Just four days later in another game, he was carried out on a stretcher after another hard hit. And the outcry led to changes. Dave Zirin, sports editor at The Nation and producer of the new documentary Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL, discussed this with A. Martinez. It definitely seems very clear now that Tua should not have been playing in that second game. Tell us about the new
26: protocols and do they go far enough?
21: Well, the new protocols are pretty basic. I mean, now if a player exhibits symptoms of what's known as ataxia, meaning stumbling, not having equilibrium, that automatically is one of the checklists on the, on the concussion protocols. Now, I don't know about you, but I was really surprised that that was not already part of the concussion protocols if a person is stumbling and can't keep their balance. So does it go far enough? I mean it does not go far enough but that speaks to one of the fundamental problems it's impossible for it to go far enough because these kinds of injuries are so baked into the cake of this sport
10: and the thing about it is the the average nfl career lasts three years just a little over three years that's according to Mm -hmm. the players union so what does it say about how the league views the long-term health of its players that it takes this long and seemingly something this striking to make some kind of change
21: And it took bad public relations to make this kind of change. And that's something players realize is that if it doesn't make big news, if it doesn't embarrass the NFL, uh, there's not going to be that kind of change because one of the great tragedies of The sport is that oftentimes players are treated just like extensions of equipment. And when they're used up, they're out the door. A lot of churn and burn when it comes to the players on the field, which is why there is such a push to make upper management more diverse in the NFL. So players can have an opportunity to do more than use their bodies, but can also use their minds.
10: And speaking of that diversity, many of the players are young men of color. Um, In your view, this, this fact, has made a difference in how concussions have been handled by the league.
21: Well, we know this, that they recently had this case around what's known as race norming, which is a huge topic, but that the NFL does no longer practices. But race norming meant that black players were having a tougher time getting a piece of the NFL's mass concussion settlement uh, with players because their cognitive testing was deemed as low uh, because of how uh, people of color traditionally perform on these kinds of tests. I mean, it was racist. It was an outrage and the nfl when it got the bad publicity said oh we, we disavow it entirely but it for a lot of players i gotta tell you it spoke to a larger uh concern that as uh young black men their lives are seen as expendable while management is a step away from even understanding the perilous nature of that
10: reality dave aziron sports editor at the nation thanks a lot dave thank you so much
4: Caterpillars are creeping their way across North Texas, feasting on foliage and leaving yards covered in silk. Member station KERA's Jacob Wells reports.
28: Dallas-Fort Worth residents are facing an infestation of tiny green cankerworms and hackberry leaf rollers. They're about half an inch to an inch long and have segmented bodies. One is kind of cute, but hundreds, like there are in Stephen Horvath's yard, are kind of gross. I thought it was kind of neat and, and fun at first. Horvath lives in Fort Worth. He first spotted the caterpillars two weeks ago. They dangled from his back door frame and the trees in his backyard. They've devoured the leaves and blanketed his patio furniture, his shed, and even a stepladder with shimmering wormweb. And then they moved inside. My son said that he found one in his lunchbox. box. Um, you know, my
24: wife doesn't like them in the house. So um, they do drop it. You, know, you have to be careful when you're cooking that they're not
28: dropping down from the ceiling into your food. These caterpillars normally come out in the spring. But Wizzy Brown, a pest expert with Texas A&M, says recent heavy rains after a dry summer may have sent the signal for these springtime bugs to hatch again.
23: Environmental conditions have just kind of made it where they're hatching out now and kind of doing their thing and trying to get their life cycle in before you know winter comes.
28: This outbreak is a nuisance to Dallas-Fort Worth residents who are left to clean up the webbing that's covered their trees, backyards, and outdoor decorations. Brown says while it's frustrating, people don't need to worry about long-term damage to their trees.
23: Most of the reports I've been getting is that they're feeding on pecan trees and hackberry trees, both of which are going to drop their leaves in the coming months anyway.
28: Some people are buying pesticides to try to combat the infestation. But Horvath, who teaches middle school science, decided against it. The research I did said like, you know, any kind of pesticides you're gonna use would harm a bunch of the other beneficial insects and it wouldn't even be effective because there are so many. While many residents think the caterpillar infestation and the cleanup is for the birds, Brown says it really is. They're a feast for birds now migrating through Texas. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Wells.
0: This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up, the story of a Massachusetts Little League coach who took his team to a national tournament where they failed badly, but along the way learned some life lessons. In your forecast, gradually clearing this morning. We'll have a sunny afternoon in the low 60s. The night temperatures fall into the low 50s. Tomorrow, sunny and low 70s. About the same on Thursday. It's 49 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Massachusetts ranks third in the nation in providing infrastructure for electric vehicles. That's according to a study from the insurance aggregator, quote, Wizard. California ranks number one for EV accessibility and Colorado, number two. About one and a half percent of drivers here use electric vehicles. Dunkin' loyalists are steaming over changes to the coffee chain's rewards program. Now it'll cost nearly twice as much to earn enough points for a free cup of coffee. Some are saying they're planning to boycott the chain until they change the system back. No comment from Dunkin'. It's
11: 845. Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at VRTX.com.
0: This is WBR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Baseball's divisional playoff series begin today, although not at Fenway Park. The Red Sox season ended last week with them in last place in the American League East. Local author Ted Flanagan knows a thing or two about losing. A few years ago, he helped coach his 12-year-old twin sons' little league team when they were invited to a national all-star tournament. It didn't go well. The team lost early and often. But the experience reminded Ted and his boys that there's more than one way to
8: win. Even in July, the nights in Milford, New York, a small town at the base of the Adirondacks, are humid and cool. I know this because a few summers ago, I sat on a picnic table outside a cabin wondering if I'd officially ruined baseball for the dozen boys sleeping peacefully inside. Milford is just a few miles from baseball's spiritual home, Cooperstown, New York. We'd gone there to play in a tournament with 103 other teams from around the country, and I was in the midst of leading our team to 104th place. It hadn't occurred to me we could end up coming in dead last. It turns out there's a subculture of ultra-competitive 12- and 13-year-old baseball. The boys on the other squads are the bodies of college players and the skills to match. They play in larger fields than standard Little League dimensions and travel the country and the world because that's the only way they can find teams good enough to play them. We watched a team from Pennsylvania, the eventual tournament champions, play a game. Those kids hit line drives off the wooden walls of the outfield so hard they resounded like rifle shots. We lost game after game, but our boys celebrated hits in the occasional run with exuberance. And we always looked ahead, always ahead, to the next game, where the score would be 0-0, at least for a bit. For the week, we asked the boys on our team to ignore the scoreboard, to play for each other and their families in the stands, to give everything they had simply because it was the right thing to do. We told them that there would be plenty of winning in each of their lives. That character is revealed when times are tough and that we were proud of them. As coaches, what we were really saying was, we're sorry we let you down. But the boys responded. They never hung their heads or threw their gloves and other teams noticed. After we lost our sole playoff game, several teams formed a gauntlet to applaud the boys as they left the field. A team from Illinois came to our cabin dressed in their spikes and baseball pants after they were eliminated to invite our boys to have pizza with them. One night near the end of the week, long after we were out of contention, I watched a 12-year-old with Bryce Harper's hulking build and Ricky Henderson's speed take off for home on a pass ball. In one motion, he slid across home plate, popped to his feet, spun in midair, and then trotted back to the dugout. It was a perfect expression of power, speed, and grace, executed by a young man clearly born to play the game with a skill most of us will never possess. Beyond the right field wall, on a small bluff, I could see a grassy area bathed in the sun's waning orange light. And there they were, my boys. They played wiffle ball, wheeling and spinning around each other like seagulls. In and out of the shadows and bright light, their laughter was clear from 100 yards away. maybe they came in last, but they belonged here too. The boys reminded me that there is still joy to be had in picking up the lance and jousting at windmills.
0: Ted Flanagan is an author and longtime contributor to Cognoscenti, WBOR's ideas and opinion page, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary this fall. You can read his essay and many more at WBOR.org. This is 90.9 WBR. I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, polls show that voters on both the left and right are worried about big campaign contributors who don't have to disclose who they are. Next month, Arizona voters will have the opportunity to make those contributors identify themselves. And coming up at noon today, it's Here and Now. And Robin Young is here to fill us in on what they're going to be
17: talking about today. Hi, Robin. Hi there to you. And we're going to be talking about with the threats of uh, using his nuclear weapons coming from Putin. People Mm -hmm. are talking about this is a time like other times, so we'll take a look. And this is where I found out, Rupa, that many members of, you know, the Here and Now staff, for instance, and maybe you, do you remember Duck and Cover? No, not that. Okay. So uh, some of us are finding out that uh, others don't uh, know that there was a time when we would be Told to get under our desks in elementary school and duck and cover our heads because of a possibility of a nuclear bomb. From mm-hmm. what that but was going to do, actually do anything, I no? know, except scare the bejesus out of you. Right. So we're going to talk with historian Julian Zelizer about other times when we have felt a nuclear threat. Also, uh, Deepa, our new co-host, is going to be taking a look at gendered ageism. This is the idea. I'm sure you're unfamiliar with this. That um, women, you know, you're either too young for a job or you're too old for a mm-hmm. job. You've got about a year, you know. When <laughs> <laughs> you consider so gendered ageism. we'll take a look at that and then oh yeah we went to new york and we saw death of a salesman starring mm-hmm. wendell pierce as the first black willie Loman. this iconic broadway role we're going to talk to wendell pierce about what that meant to him he's an amazing um, author amazing uh, actor an amazing amazing uh, yeah, sorry yeah, actor. that's what you meant amazing yeah. job that he does we'll have that at noon
0: very lucky thank you robin thank that's you that's here and now today at noon it's 851 The biggest event
17: in soccer.
6: The World Cup kicks off next month. How is the U.S. men's team looking after missing
2: the last tournament?
5: We have this unprecedented wave of young talents
3: playing for some of the greatest teams in the world for the first time in our nation's history. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More on the game's big talents and past greats this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
18: Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR.
6: It's four weeks till the midterms. Do you know where all that campaign money is coming from? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at Viking.com. And by Insperity, providing HR support, including access to benefits and HR tech, helping businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference.
20: I'm David Brancaccio. It's a Marketplace series this week on money, politics, and whether campaign donors can be secret Santas who spend big, but you never know it's them. I traveled to Arizona where voters a month from now will decide if some of the biggest campaign spenders should have to reveal their identities. Yesterday, it was the electric company in Arizona that secretly spent millions of dollars to elect friendly regulators. Now to a measure on the ballot in Arizona next month that seeks to curb mystery money in campaigns. Our original
16: slogan was outlaw dirty money.
20: As a former prosecutor, uh, Terry Goddard knows money laundering. What he now calls dark money is not criminal money laundering, but he says
16: it is a way to launder money. The same techniques that are used by the cartels to move money from sale of drugs into legitimate business is the kind of thing that's being done politically with the dark money operation.
20: Goddard, who used to be attorney general of Arizona, is a guiding force behind the question Arizona voters will decide in November, called Proposition 211. To understand it, you need to know how political donations can become anonymous. Funders can hand the money to an intermediary, a kind of nonprofit allowed to play in politics. Who paid for that attack ad? Dunno, some nonprofit with a pleasant-sounding
16: name. Americans for Peanut Butter or Americans for a Better Tomorrow, whatever the nonsense name is, they can say anything. And if it means defaming the other side or saying things that are untrue, uh, they're, they're happy to do it because they have no reputation at risk.
20: He says voters also need to know who's paying to help them sift through campaign claims and counterclaims. Goddard is a Democrat, but meet funder number one of this initiative. Are you another one of those Democrats, capital D? No, no, I'm, I'm registered independent. Um, I'm a major supporter of political campaigns for both Republicans and for Democrats. Would have been mighty rich had this man given his money secretly, but no. That would be fairly ironical if I had, yeah. No, it's, it's out there. His fully disclosed name, David Tedesco, founder of a Phoenix-based company called Outlier that does everything from travel medicine to real estate. And in a state where some lie awake worried about billionaire Charles Koch on the right and others lie awake about billionaire George Soros on the left, Tedesco says his conservative business friends and his liberal pals are getting behind this ballot prop. I think historically Republicans felt like dark money benefited them and uh, Democrats felt like it hurt them. If you look at the data,
24: uh, you can actually see that in some cycles, Democrats have actually benefited more from dark money than Republicans have. And I think both sides have come to realize it's sort of a weapon of mass destruction that isn't really
20: helping anybody. But bipartisan doesn't mean universal appeal. Kathy Herrod is president of the Center for Arizona Policy that advocates for what it terms life, marriage and family and religious freedom. She also runs a separate but related nonprofit of the sort that does political work, not a 501c3 under the tax code, but a 501c4. Herod believes Proposition 211 would chill free speech.
25: Every Arizonan should be free to support causes with their dollars, without fear of bullying, disclosure, harassment. She brings
20: up a 2014 controversy in neighboring California involving the CEO of the Firefox browser company.
25: And when the donation became public, he lost his job because he was supporting the marriage amendment that would have prohibited marriage between two men or two women. And that was not a popular cause. He lost his job.
20: That said, the Mozilla guy's donation had been structured to be public from the get go. Herod says that if more disclosure pressures people into not spending money in Arizona, and if money enables speech, this would mean less speech, which she believes violates the First Amendment. But voters in Arizona will get to decide after almost 400,000 signatures were submitted. Signatures gathered in part by volunteers like Nikki Kirkaby, a retired flight attendant with a secret weapon.
18: They'd have a doggy treats for the dogs, have my table, and people would come up and talk.
20: Her pitch contrasts normal campaign donations, both large and small in Arizona, the ones that don't go through nonprofits. Those are public for all to see.
18: You know, it's only fair. You know, we have to disclose when we make a donation of $50 or more, the people behind these large donations should have their name attached to them.
20: Tomorrow, the long and winding road of a ballot initiative like this. All of our secret money public influence coverage is accumulating at marketplace.org. After a sell-off earlier today causing a spike in interest rates, things are coming down on the bond market with the 10-year interest rate at 3.91%. Stock index futures have also pared back earlier losses. In fact, the Dow future has just turned up slightly.
6: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, provider of the CRM built for the relationship economy, helping dealmakers in venture capital, banking, and consulting find, manage, and close deals faster. Affinity.co slash marketplace. And by Fidelity Wealth Management, helping create plans for a client's full financial picture. Fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by UKG, HR and workforce management solutions designed to turn a business from a workplace into a work of art. UKG, our purpose is people.
20: The U.S. Supreme Court is scheduled to hear oral arguments today over a case that tests whether one state can set rules that end up applying outside of its borders. Pork producers are suing to stop a California law over how pigs are treated on farms. Now, how the high court decides has implications across the country. Marketplace's Nova Safo reports. The case involves a voter
21: approved California law, not yet in effect, which requires pork sold in the state to come from pigs whose mothers were kept in pens large enough to lie down and turn around. Groups representing pork producers sued, saying most pigs are raised in farms outside of California where those standards aren't met. Pork producers argue only Congress can regulate interstate commerce. Lower courts have sided with proponents of the California law who say states can't set standards for products sold within their borders. The Supreme Court's decision will impact other state laws, targeting everything from climate change to prescription drug prices. I'm Novosafo for Marketplace.
20: Our producers are Meredith Gerritsen, Ariana Rosa, Steven Ryan, Alex Schroeder, Erica Soderstrom, and Jared Dang. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. APM American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Skies clear for a sunny afternoon today in the low 60s. Tonight it falls to the low 50s. Tomorrow warmer sunny and low 70s. About the same on Thursday. It's 49 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on nine o'clock and the BBC is next.
18: A California entrepreneur is building affordable homes in south-central Los Angeles at half the usual cost. How? By saying no to public funding.
9: Low-income communities need development. They need new capital. But they need it to be done in a way that really benefits the entire community. And one of the underlying principles we have is same neighbors, better
18: neighborhoods. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.